Well, good morning. My name's Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed here. It's good to be with you. Um, this time last week, I would have said I was one of three pastors. This time this week, I say I'm one of four. We're uh, expanding rapidly, uh, and uh, we're delighted to, uh, to continue to uh, have other pastors to serve the church. So you've heard some prayers for that this morning, and that's been wonderful. Also, uh, last Sunday was a, a day in which uh, not only at Naman's did we observe Naman's ordination in the evening, um, but afterwards we opened the doors of this little building we own in Greenfield and, and stepped into this fellowship hall slash office area for the first time as a church. It was wonderful, really beautiful space, and I'm so thankful to the many, many volunteers that helped to make that possible. Well, our children have been dismissed for uh, Children's Church. They kind of self-dismissed. Uh, they knew it was time. They went. If you wanted to go and haven't gone, now's the time. Speak now uh, or forever hold your peace. Um, uh, uh, we are here moving through a book of the Bible, a letter from James to the church that was dispersed throughout the, uh, the ancient world, probably throughout uh, uh, the Judean area outside of Jerusalem. James has been... Uh, speaking to them about uh, God's calling on their life. Last week, Joseph preached on James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, this week, we, we still have it in italics in your bulletin. We're going to refer to it, but we're going to press on. And what we'll read together is uh, chapters, uh, or verses uh, 7 through 12. Let me read that now, and we'll together affirm this is God's word. James chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you just glance back at the section in italics, this is what Joseph preached on last week. James gave a warning to the rich. He began in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, Joseph made a, a, a very interesting point as he referenced the passage. He, uh, he talked about statistics of world wealth. You may remember this. And he said something like this. I should have written down his exact statistic. My sermon notes weren't good. But my memory is, he said, 90% of the wealth in the world is uh, owned by 1% of the people. It was something roughly like that. And then he turned, the next thing he said is, if you make over $50,000 a year, you are in that 1%. Which was a startling thing to think about. Now, Joseph made the point that by feet, by, by, uh, as a result of living where we live in the most wealthy, prosperous country in, in the history of the world, uh, we are, by fact, much closer to a, a level of worldwide wealth than we often think of ourselves. 
And so uh, Joseph, as he read the passage, challenged us to think about the deceptiveness of wealth, the, the way in which our resources can be used poorly or improperly, the way in which our wealth can bring power and power can be used to oppress others. This was the warning that he gave and he wanted all of us, he challenged all of us to listen to it and to think about the ways in our lives it can apply to us. I left it in italics because this week we turned the coin, so to speak, pun intended. Uh, We'll think about wealth on the other side of the coin. Um, James is speaking this week in the section I read, not to people with power, but people who didn't feel like they had power. Now, it's True, you could be rich and feel powerless. There's a lot of things in your life you can't control. Uh, Regardless of where we are financially, this can all apply to us. When the doctor comes with a diagnosis that's hard, your wealth might get you better treatment. And let's face it, we all have unprecedented access to medical treatment in the history of the world and in the world today. But even then... We're still looking at a 100% mortality rate for the human condition. There's a lot we can't control. And even if we have access to money, there's a lot of things we need to buy. And they're expensive. And I think most of us see places in our life where the money just doesn't go far enough. Or the people around us that are difficult in our lives are are people we can't control. This week, James, uh, if last week James invited us, challenged us to think about how our resources are used appropriately, this week he challenges us to think about what we do when we don't have control. And again, they're not mutually exclusive. I think we both can relate to both of them. So what does James tell us to do? He speaks about a situation where suffering is very much a part of our reality. Verse 10, he speaks of uh, the ways in which prophets were an example of suffering. Uh, the, the people that James was writing to were very familiar with what we call the Old Testament. They know that many of the prophets who spoke the word of God, which is what James references them, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord were examples of suffering and patience. In the face of things we can't control, James urges patience. Now, that might not be the advice that we want, but we see in the passage four times that James uses the word patient or patience. Verse 7, he gives this as a command, be patient, therefore, brothers. You'll notice the therefore connects to what happened before. And he's speaking to them, and many of them can identify with the experience of having uh, people who are actually being oppressed. That was what we read in verses 1 through 6. We, we speak of those who have misused their wealth and their power. They have, uh, they have defrauded their laborers as they lived in luxury and self-indulgence. They've condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist. And most likely, James, uh, Joseph spoke of that as a reference to Jesus, the righteous man who didn't resist. But we also see in that verse a reference to the righteous who cannot resist because they can't control anything. And it seems with this in mind that that James then says, therefore, in light of this. And he speaks to his congregation with very warm feelings. Brothers, he says, and and this Greek word would have replied to the entire congregation, the men and the women, brothers and sisters, family, James says to them, be patient, therefore. I know your circumstances. I know the situation you're in. You're facing things you can't control and it's hard. 
And again, I invite you today to think about how this word reaches you in your place where things are beyond your control. James not only commands them to be patient in verse 7, but in verse, later in verse 7, he gives us an example. He says, think of it this way. Think of about how, how a farmer waits for the harvest being patient about it. There's an analogy. A farmer dealing with circumstances beyond his control. If any of you are gardeners or farmers, you know how much of the process is beyond your control. A blight comes, you can't do anything about it, you can't control the rains, you might irrigate or water a little bit. But James says, here's a picture of what you experience. The harvest comes, it's beyond your control. He then, in verse six, 8, re- repeats this command again. He says, you also be patient. And then in verse 10, he gives the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. So we're going to look at, at three things today as we consider uh, the difficulties of living in circumstances beyond our control. We'll first of all ask, what is patience? Then we'll talk about why patience is hard. And finally, advice James gives to cultivate patience. What is patience? Why is patience hard? How do we cultivate patience? Now, first of all, what is patience? I, I think this is a, a term and an idea we, we can reflexively get really wrong. I don't know about you, but uh, this is probably because I'm a parent. When I think about telling someone to be patient, uh, I often think about what I tell my kids to do when I want them to stop doing something. All right, and we're, I'm, I'm busy and something's happening and they say, when can we have dessert? That might be heard in our house from time to time. And I'll just say, be patient. And what I mean by that is don't do anything and I'll eventually take care of it. A lot of times when we hear a, an appeal to patience, we might get the picture of waiting for a train or waiting for an airplane. What are you doing? You're just sitting there. Maybe you're trying to keep yourself distracted. The plane's going to come and you're doing nothing. When James says patience, we can reflexively fill the word patience with a lot of nothing. As if James is telling them, here you are, there are rich oppressors in your life, there are circumstances beyond your control, you're being defrauded, the the righteous people are being murdered, just be patient and do nothing, wait for the plane to come. I'd like to give a different picture today because I don't think that accurately represents what James has been talking about throughout his book, and it doesn't even make sense of what we have here. We may reflexively fill in the word patience with a whole lot of nothing, but that's not what James has been doing throughout his book, and that's not what he's doing in his passage today. Let me, let me give you a different picture. Rather than waiting for an airplane, twiddling your thumbs, or, you know, what do we do now? We don't have to be patient anymore. Just scroll through your, whatever handheld device you might have. But instead of doing a whole lot, of, which is still a whole lot of nothing for the most part, right? Agreed? Um, instead of being patient with a whole lot of nothing, let me give you a different picture. Uh, I've, I've been playing soccer for you know, the better part of four decades now. I've been coaching recently, and as a coach, uh, one of the things I most say to my players when they're playing defense is I say, be patient. And what that means in coach speak is that they have to, exactly, hopefully my players know this, they go quickly to the ball, they close down the ball, they cut off the angle, but they avoid jumping in too much so that they'll get beat. All right, if you weren't taking notes, that's all right. We come to practice, we'll repeat it about five times. And in the middle of a game, if the other team is beating our players, I'll keep yelling, be patient. Now, in that use of the word, patient does not mean doing nothing. 
It means going quickly to the ball, closing down the carrier, cutting off the angle, and watching what they do. Or, if you think of another sport, uh, I think of sports for these analogies, but a running back in football might patiently hit the hole. A softball player who's patient at the plate might be waiting for the pitch that she really wants, but she's not doing nothing. Doing a whole lot of something, and she's getting ready to swing. So there are a lot of examples where our patience is not filled with doing nothing, but filled with doing something, something very important. And I'd like to argue that in this context, what James means by patience is that we continue to be faithful to what God has called us to do, even when it's hard. But for James, patience is not inactivity. It is a very busy word. You know this if you've been with us throughout the book. If, one of the big characteristics of the book of James is his call to action. It, we've said throughout that three of the big themes that go through the whole letter are the concern James has that we first of all learn to bridle our tongue, that we learn to be active and caring for the needs of those around us, and third, we don't get stained and affected by the patterns of the world. Now the point James has been making throughout the letter is that if you do nothing, you will fail in all three of those areas. Guarding and bridling our tongue keeps constant vigilance. We're going to be careful with what we say. And the thing that James condemned explicitly was the response a person had to a, um, a, a brother in need who came asking for help, and they said, be warm and well fed. They gave him the patience full of a whole lot of nothing. Just be patient over there, you. God's going to help you. And James says, if you're not active to care for the need that's presented to you, you are not displaying faith. He gave very strong words to people who filled their patience with a whole lot of nothing. James also, in the verse immediately preceding what we have in italics, uh, concluded his, his prior discussion, the end of chapter 4, and he said, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. The person who's sitting on their hands waiting for the train saying, I'm being patient, God's going to show up, and they're failing to do the right thing, James actually says, you are sinning. The patience of James is an act of patience, and as we look carefully at the passage, we see that's actually found throughout. How does a farmer wait for the harvest? They don't wait by doing nothing. In some cases, they're fertilizing, maybe irrigating, they're certainly weeding, in the first century, they had to drive off the wild animals so they didn't eat all of the harvest. The, the farmer who sat on his or her hands waiting for the harvest doing nothing would be considered lazy. But they, they were still patient. They were, they were called to action, but the forces of growth were beyond their control. In the same way that the prophets, that was his other example, he said, think of the prophets. They're an example of suffering and patience. Well, the one thing that characterized prophets in this passage is that they spoke. In fact, the reason they were suffering is because they were speaking. They were full of voices around them that were saying things like this. They were saying, just be patient and stop saying the word of the Lord. We're tired of that. They were patiently steadfast. Those are the words that James equates in this passage. The patience he calls for is equivalent to steadfastness. Look with us again at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, 
we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Who were the those? The prophets speaking in the name of the Lord. They're an example of patience and suffering by being steadfast. What did they do? They kept speaking the word of the Lord. They kept doing the right thing even when it was hard. I would suggest when we look at verse 12, we make sense of this hard verse in exactly the same way. Again, James, some, we wish James gave us a little more uh, connecting words with some of his ideas. And sometimes it feels like he's going from topic to co- topic. But verse 12, a challenging verse, right, actually makes sense and we think of it in this context. Why does James say, stop making extravagant oaths? An extravagant oath is a person who wasn't generally honest. And so when they really, really wanted you to know they were honest, they would swear by the most extravagant things. I swear on my mother's grave. When I was a young kid, and, and, uh, we had a, a boy in the neighborhood who was a notorious liar, and he was the one who made the most oaths. I swear to you, I swear to you, I would, on a stack of Bibles, is what he would say. Right? And the reason he said those things is he was notoriously a liar. The point James is making is not that we never make promises or we don't have an appropriate oath or a vow, but when you do so, make your yes, yes, and your no, no. In other words, be steadfast. It's the same quality showing up in our words. Of course, we know there are occasions where we say, I'll do something and the circumstances change, but what he's talking about is a, a lifestyle of consistency, being steadfast, even when it's hard. And it is hard, isn't it? The second point we have is James reminds us in the passage why it's hard. The first and most immediate context, the context we we look at, again, that Joseph looked at last week, is the context many of these people were in. He spoke to them as exiles from the dispersion. And, and we said early on that could refer to people who had gone out maybe decades or more, maybe centuries before for a variety of reasons. And they may have been well established economically. So there could be people, and, and it does seem there are people with resources that James is speaking to. But many of them were possibly, probably in my opinion, dispersed by persecution in Jerusalem. They had fled. And when, pe- when people are refugees, they leave with sometimes just the stuff on their backs. These, these were folks James was writing to, very likely, that had very limited economic resources. And they came maybe to a new place without kinship networks to protect them. They were vulnerable. We can easily understand how they'd have a situation where these wealthy landowners in, in verses 1 through 6 are a are unjustly taking the wages of those working for them. And there was not much they could do about it. That's the circumstances that James is talking about here. Waiting is hard. James is not telling them they can't pursue justice. He's not telling them they can't... uh, In in fact, the, the, the context of the letter is one where he's urging us to think carefully about issues of justice and equity. But he also knows that for many of the people, there's very little they can do in that moment. They are facing circumstances beyond their control and their suffering. And he reminds them that God is active. That, that's really the, the heart of his message here. To people are suffering, he says, you look around you and you don't see the ability to control your, your circumstances. You don't have money to pay the necessary bribes. You can't control the politicians. 
You don't have the relational network to make things work for you. You don't have power. You don't own the land. You can't control it. But God is present. That's the hope that he offers for us. We see it throughout the passage. Look at verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Their patience is in reference to the coming of Jesus. In verse 9, he speaks in a similar way with really vivid language. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I skipped over verse 8, but in verse 8, he urged us, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We have in the passage these three references to the coming of Jesus, the judge being at the door, and he's speaking to people that don't have other resource, other recourse, other ability to change their circumstances, and he says God is close. We look back at this passage from last week, and one of the powerful things that Joseph intentionally left for me to look at is he says to those who've been defrauded, the cries of you defrauded harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. The Lord hears. God is present. And yet, it's hard. It's hard simply because we don't see God being present, not visibly. The judge is not visible to our human eyes at the door. And the way God works is often slow. Verse 11, he speaks of the, 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 the uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, speaks of the farmer waiting for the harvest. What's the experience of waiting for a harvest? These people knew it well. Often the growth was slow, especially if you're hungry. The plant is growing, and for a long time, the growth is happening underground. You don't even see it. It's happening. It's happening all the time. God's at work bringing the harvest, and yet you can't see it. And even when you can see it, you're waiting. Can you imagine if you were really hungry, and your only hope was your harvest, and you were watching it grow, and you're thinking, can those tomatoes please ripen? Yesterday, and that's probably where they get fried green tomatoes, right? I can't wait any longer. James tells us we have to wait, and waiting is hard. It reminds us we can't control the process. Even if our waiting is active, like a good farmer, fertilizing, guarding, protecting, weeding, doing all of that, the central process is beyond our control. The prophets knew that. That's his second example, right? The prophets who suffered because of the word of the Lord. That was the calling. You, you know, if you had a, a training school for prophets in the Old Testament, they would say, you know, who, who really wants to do this job? What's going to happen to you? You'll be rejected, persecuted, abandoned. They might throw you in a pit. They might saw you in two. Uh, it's it's going to be really hard, but God will speak through you. They were patient in suffering. They continued. And a lot of times, the prophets spoke and didn't see a result. In many cases, they spoke of a reality they wouldn't see in their lifetime. That's a hard calling. It's hard to be patient, faithfully patient and active when God is not working as quickly as we would like. It's hard to wait. At this point, I do think we want to just say a little bit more about the working of God in the world we hear these references to the coming of Jesus and the, God, the judge being at the door. And Christians understand that uh, the, the full scope of God's work in the world is, is found, finds its end, its great, the Greek word is telos, its great end in the coming of Jesus. 
All of the great statements of the church from the very beginning of the church says, I believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. The great hope of Christianity is that Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus will come again. And so as we hear these things, we naturally first and appropriately think that all history is moving to an end and a great day when justice will be perfect, when judgment will be complete, when the restoration of all things will be in its final form. And it is our great hope. Christians do well to remind themselves of this again and again, this great hope in the future that is not yet here as we wait for it. But God is active in the world throughout. We, we might speak of God active in the sense of his judgment as being not yet, there'll be a day when he comes, but God is already present. It's not as if we, we, God just takes his hands off the world and says, well, someday I'm coming back. But the story of the Bible is a story of a God who's active. Not fully, not finally, it's not all now, but the story throughout the Bible is the story of God working for his people to bring salvation and judgment in the midst of their experience. This was true for the prophets of old, for the people of the Old Testament who suffered under the oppression of Pharaoh. God broke in and delivered them. He acted through judgment and salvation to bring them out of their bondage in Egypt. And the story of the Old Testament would continue that way. One after another, repressive regime would be raised up. At times they would be used for good purposes in the life of God's people, but often they would be brutal and difficult. And the prophets would remind them that even though they look all-powerful now, God will bring them to nothing. And so in history, God's judgment has broken in. We don't always understand it or see it clearly, but the great and powerful empires of the world are brought to nothing. As we look through the ancient history, we see the oppressive powers of Assyria, Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans that in their glory looked unstoppable. Sometimes, in a short period of time, would be reduced to nothing. In the front of the bulletin, we have a quote from a, a great poet of years gone by, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, referencing an even older saying, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. James was writing probably in the early 50s B.C., maybe two decades after Jesus was raised from the dead. And as he said, the judge is standing at the door. There is a sense in which the judge is not ever fully entered. And yet, from the perspective of James, God has been tremendously active. And I think when James speaks of the immediacy of the judge standing at the door, perhaps one of his eyes is looking to the return of Christ, and maybe he, he doesn't see it all, but the other eye may have seen the prophecies of Jesus about the destruction of Jerusalem within a generation of his death and resurrection. James may be writing in 53, 54 BC or AD or something like that. In, in just over a decade, the region of Jerusalem would rise up and revolt, and by 70 AD, the Roman Empire would crush them. 
destroying the city, destroying the temple, absolutely turning everything up and down, upside down in the region. And as we hear James speaking to these these, uh, wealthy landowners defrauding their workers, this is what he's talking about, we know within a very short amount of time, everything was going to be changed. You may be a a wealthy landowner in 53 AD. You may not have been in 71 AD. In a very short amount of time, really hard things were going to happen. The judge really was standing at the door. So it is for us, we look towards the return of Christ, but we also wait and cry out for God's intervention in the world. The the hope of the church is the power of God working in and through us and the promise that the structures above us that look oppressive and impossibly large will be one day reduced to nothing. Whether it's the last day or it's God's work in time and history. So we're active, but we wait. And there are so many things beyond our control. How do we continue to be faithful as we wait? As we wait for a judge that we can't see, as we wait for an intervention we can't control, as we wait for the almighty, all-powerful, but invisible God to intervene in our circumstances. We'll close with three short reminders from the passage. How do we wait? How do we learn to cultivate a lifestyle of steadfast faithfulness as we look to God to intervene. The first is what James told us by looking at the farmer. I think we can simply remind ourselves that everything in the world is a testimony to slow processes being very powerful. Right? We have a saying, Rome wasn't built in the day. The hard things you're involved with, we remind ourselves, even human accomplishments take time. I have to be steadfast. I have to be faithful over a period of time. There aren't quick fixes. I was reading an article on parenting this past week, and just the author was urging the readers to remember that parenting is a long process over a long period of time. And every parent wishes they had a, a magic pill or a wand, a wave, a quick fix, just make it happen now. But that's not how it works. You have to be steadfast, consistent, faithful, doing what God calls over a long period of time, and you often don't see the fruit. That's what you're called to. Well, James James says you kind of understand it because you've seen it happen before. You know what it is to farm. You know what it is to build. You know what it is to be invested in a process. Look at those things and remind yourself this is often how the processes work that's how just because we don't see the final end doesn't mean God isn't working he's working and preparing even now remember the natural processes remind yourself of these things guard against the temptation for quick fixes microwave discipleship easy solutions in our spirituality we know that's not how it works secondly Look as in, uh, verse ten. As in, look as an example of this, to the suffering and patience of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I think this is most generally a reference to church history. Friends, we we live in a time and a place where our world is changing rapidly, our country is changing rapidly, and many Christians feel places where they just are marginalized and don't have power. They might feel overwhelmed by systems and structures that are bigger and beyond us. The temptation is, as always, a quick fix, an easy solution. 
an explanation that's not so hard or difficult and takes away the, uh, the difficulty of the moment. I think honesty tells us that you know, the moment's hard. If you're a Christian, you may not have a lot of power in your workplace, and you may feel marginalized. But take, as an example, the prophets. Or consider God's faithful people in other times and places. We may face difficulties now, uh, but, but consider the suffering of God's people in other times and other places throughout the world. We pray regularly for the church beyond our borders, and as we do so, we're reminded that though we may face small difficulties or persecutions here, they pale in comparison to what our brothers and sisters have experienced in the world today or even in our country. As we've talked often about uh, racial reconciliation, it is a powerful tool for us to remember the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffered deeply even in our own country. We learned patience and suffering as they called upon the name of the Lord in very difficult circumstances. So the history of God's people, the faithful witness of God's people reminds us we can be steadfast. It gives us perspective and reminds us of God's power to work. Sometimes things change quickly in ways we can't even imagine. We don't know God's intervention as we look forward. We can see it, however, in hindsight. Third, finally, and most importantly, James lands on this passage. In this passage, he lands on this verse as he encourages people to faithfulness. Verse 11 You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have seen in the past the purpose of the Lord. I think he invites us to look at our own life, to see what we know about God. God was faithful to me before. But James also names those qualities that have been revealed in God, revealed through those prophets who spoke faithfully. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's what James is telling us. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. You don't know his plan. You can't see the working of God in the world. Often it's beneath the ground, so to speak. But God has told us about himself. The name we give to trust in God when we don't know what he's doing is simply faith. We see examples of slow working processes all around us. We see God intervening in the lives of his people through history. And we know our own story, ways God has demonstrated faithfulness to us. James says, hold these two words, will you? As you seek to be steadfast in the midst of suffering the Lord is compassionate and merciful those words wash over you friends isn't that good news I don't know what God is doing I haven't, I haven't the faintest clue what will happen in our country tomorrow or beyond what will happen to the church throughout the world but we know God is present and we know that what he's doing is revealing his compassion and his mercy for the people that he has called to himself through Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, we have seen that in Jesus, God has gone to extraordinary lengths to save us. At the cost of his own life, Jesus gave himself that we could be redeemed 
Paul says, if God has given us this, do we not also believe he will give us all things? Do we not believe that in the midst of circumstances we can't discern the patient, compassionate, merciful God is working for our good? Let's pray.